Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. In our episode of History 101 series, we continue Arabic Islam from Muhammad to the Mongols with part two, women in early Islam. So we start with women in early Islam, and we put up a photo of the Afghan girl from National Geographic from the 80s, which has a history to it that is um, imperial. It's unflattering. Not for the woman who is still alive and is in back in Afghanistan. She was living as a refugee in Pakistan. But for the photographer, for National Geographic, for the much of the story that has come out about it. And so I have it here because it's one of the most famous photographs of a Islamic woman in the history of the world. And um, I'm honest about I don't know about using it. So... But we're here to talk about women and um, it's not always a pleasant story. So for women in Islam, we have three stages. That's the way to think about it. We have the pre-Muhammad, the Mohammedan, and then the um, imperial, the caliphate periods. So in the pre-Muhammad period, before we have Islam, so what, what is women's life before Islam? When they are a nomadic society, nomadic horse-born society, living in uh, the small tribes that are spending most of their time fighting each other. That's how we described Arabia. Well, it's a poor society, and so women's labor is important. Women contribute a lot to the economic success of the family and the tribe. And so they have rights and a form of independence, as we've talked about with nomadic women. Women are especially central to tribal alliances. So while tribes, tribes fight a lot, it's women's role, especially in their marriages, which tries to keep the peace. So while I may get into a fight with some guy of a different tribe and I may want to start a war and I'm going to, I hate this guy and I'm going to go fight him. My wife is like, well, you know, he's married to my sister's husband's cousin's favorite friend's um, aunt, which makes him family. You can't fight him. And I'm like, ah, oh, come on. Oh, really? I mean, I was going to. Oh, okay. And what does that mean? It means you have to find another way of dealing with your problems. And so women become central to these tribal alliances. They are their marriages, their lives, their children, their their existence become the grease that it keeps these societies from just falling apart into barbarism and just wiping each other out. And so women are 
the glue that's holding a lot of this together. Now, it's a nomadic society. You should understand men could have more than one wife because of that. So you marry multiple people because a lot of those marriages were alliance marriages. Remember, that's even true of early settled people. Solomon had 56 wives. How many of them were real wives and how many of them were just alliances? You know, Alexander had two, three, four wives, something like that. There was a Persian, the daughter of the Persian king. There was an Afghan girl named Roxanne, who was another daughter of, you know. So, so the these marriages, these multiple marriages of men, were these alliances trying to keep these these societies from from fighting each other. So in the Muhammad period, women become the mothers of believers. So like in the Code of Hammurabi, their reproductive role becomes highlighted. They become the mothers of the next generation of Muslim men and the next generation of Muslim women who will give birth to the next generation of Muslim men. They are also the ones who are going to raise these children to be good Muslims. Right? There's no schools. Remember, there are no schools. There are no universities. This is still a poor society. Muhammad is warring against other tribes. He's uniting them. He's building this together. Arabia is still in the middle of nowhere. And so they're carving out this new role within the religion while bolting it onto the roles women already had. So they still work. They still provide. They're still economically important. But what Muhammad is emphasizing is their caregiving, their reproductive and their caregiving roles. So this is a change from the pre-Muhammad period where their economic role is highlighted. And it makes sense. If you're Muhammad, you need more Muslims. There's only two ways of getting more Muslims. You have to conquer and get more converts, which was a dicey proposition in the earliest days, or you have to make new Muslims. You have to give birth to them and raise them to be Muslims. So what he's doing is, is supporting both methods. So what do women now need? To be the mothers of believers, they need protection and education. They need protection to be able to do their jobs as women, as mothers. They need protection from poverty. They need protection from famine. They need protection from want. They need to be able to sleep at night. 
knowing that they're safe. And that protection needs to be provided by men. They also need education. Why? And education in what? Well, remember, in our class, we always mean education as literacy, the ability to read and write. They don't need high-level Greek philosophy, but they have to be able to read and write. They have to be able to analyze. They have to be able to comprehend uh, language and, liter and, and what they are reading, so basic reading comprehension. That's what all education is at this point. You know, if you're really rich, you can go higher than that. But for the basic education, whenever we're talking education, we mean literacy, being able to read and write. Well, only 5% of Arabs can read and write. So why should women suddenly get a, get a right to read and write? Why should ordinary peasant women get a right to read and write? Well... Because to raise children as good Muslims, you need to use the Quran. Remember, the Quran is the complete guide to living. The Quran is a book. From the very beginning, just like Judaism, it is a literate society. It is a religion that demands its followers read the scriptures. That's a major change for Arabs from pre-Islam to post-Islam. It's in it's in it's the same change that happens in Europe following the Protestant Reformation. Because Protestantism, whether it's Lutheranism or any of the others that, that prop up all demand you be able to read the New Testament. If you can do the Old Testament too, it's confusing. There's some problems there, but great. But you gotta you gotta be able to read about Jesus and the apostles. You have to. So literacy matters in Protestant societies in a way that can be argued doesn't in Catholic societies where the church, the Catholic church, continued to preach the gospel, but you didn't own it. It continued to be in Latin, but for most people, they didn't have it in their hands, They so they couldn't read it. Well, in Islam, you are supposed to read the Quran. And remember, the Quran is also supposed to be in Arabic, too, so there's that. So women have to be able to read and write. They have to have comprehension, reading comprehension. Now, remember, once you can read and write the Quran, you can read and write about anything. But to be able to be a good mother of believers, you need to be able to teach them what's in the Quran. And to do so, you need to be able to read and write. And so men have to provide that. Fathers have to provide this. Husbands have to provide this. Notice women aren't considered children. Right? That's the major way we've talked about women in ancient societies. That women are children. No, this is elevation. 
that while the Code of Hammurabi does elevate the role of and the position legally of wife and mother, it still restricts them to be children. This is different. This is telling you women have an important social role within Islam that must be respected, it must be protected, and it must be supported. So when you see things like ISIS attacks a school, a girls' school, in Afghanistan or Iraq, and you go, oh, those, those Muslims, that's not Muslim. That's not Islam. That's a bunch of conservatives who want to dominate women. They want to dominate the society by keeping education out of the hands of women. That's what that is. They may say, oh, we're more Islamic than anybody else, but you're not. Nobody. Uh, nobody's more Islamic than Muhammad. Nobody. Only Allah. And so to say women shouldn't have an education, to say we're going to attack a school, to throw acid in people's faces, that's not Muslim. That's not Islam. So then why, if you're an American, if you're a Westerner, do you have a different idea of how women are treated in Islam? Because while the Muhammad period is not, say, full equality, it certainly fits into the kind of Donna Reed 50s housewife, WandaVision style of women and not the oppression that many in the West see as women's lives. And that's some very conservative regimes force upon women. Well, it's the third period after Muhammad. And that's when Islam gets rich. The conquest of the Middle East, the conquest of Persia, the conquest of Egypt, North Africa, Spain. The connections to the Vikings all allowed for the importation of slaves. Victory brought in slaves. Islam was a slave-holding society, which is not unusual in this period. Slavery exists in many of the societies we are talking about. It's actually more exceptional where it kind of starts to die out. Remember the Romans were slave-owning people until Theodosius made everyone a Christian. The great emancipator made everyone a Christian and essentially outlawed slavery. Because remember, all, no Christian can own another Christian as a slave. And I know there's a major problem with that in the 1500s. We'll get there when we do History 102 and we do European-African slave trade. Islam has the same idea. No Muslim should own another Muslim as a slave. But if they're not Muslims, you can use their labor. 
But because Islam is a Mediterranean society, Arabs are a Mediterranean society, their concept of slavery is very much the Mediterranean concept of slavery. The Greek, Egyptian, uh, Persian, Indian, uh, Roman concept, which is you could earn manumission, you could earn freedom. Or your children. It wasn't necessarily generation, generation, generation. You, your children could earn manumission and freedom. Especially in Islam, if your children become Muslim, which the owner is supposed to do. Because you're supposed to make new Muslims. The world is supposed to be Muslim. So, as a good slave owner... You're supposed to introduce them to Islam, just like as a good slave owner in the American South and in the Caribbean, you were supposed to introduce people to Christianity. Now, what was supposed to happen and what happens in, well, what's supposed to happen in the Islamic world and what was supposed to happen in the American world was then having been taught and having achieved religious equality, these people were then supposed to become citizens and if not them, their children become free men and enter in society enter into society what this does though is bringing an immense amount of money and an immense amount of labor that can then be used by the arabs to get rich and that's great if you're an arab you have lived generations as far as anyone could ever relate as poor people and you have watched the mesopotamians the indians uh greeks romans come through your your desert on the way to somewhere else carrying the the wealth of civilizations and you were locked out of it and now it's yours congratulations to the victor goes the spoils an unforeseen problem with that is that women no longer need to work. No, honey, you don't have to work. You don't have to go to the store. I can get a slave to do that. No, you don't have to pick in the fields. No, you don't have to butcher the goat. I can get a slave to do that. Relax. In very much the same way as Victorian industrialization the wealth of early industrialization allowed British men to make enough money that their wives didn't have to work. Islam does the same thing. And the idea is women don't have to work. Isn't this wonderful? This is a good thing. Because work sucks. Remember, if you won $100 million in the lotto, the first thing you would do is quit your job. Everybody would. And then you'd set up a new thing to keep you occupied. But you'd be like, working for $10 an hour? No. Sorry, I'm worth $100 million. I make more on the interest than you could possibly pay me. So thanks, I'm gone. I have other things, better things to do with my time. So this is seen as a good thing. Islamic society has made it. Islamic society is wealthy enough, it's women don't have to work. The problem is, is that women don't have to work, which means they are sucked out of society. What do you now do with these women? 
They don't have to interact in the larger society. Or two things that were considered good things. They bring in Byzantine and Persian ideas. Having conquered the Byzantines, who, remember, built Constantinople, the greatest city in the whole wide world, and conquering the Persians, who at one point owned all of this, all the Middle East, and have built Persepolis, and are a great and old and significant culture. Having conquered both of those, they brought things out of those cultures. From the Byzantines came the idea of separation of men and women. They looked at Greek homes and they went, oh my God, they are so rich. The Greeks are so rich. They have separate bedrooms. They have separate sections of their house. Men are on one side, women are on the other. Oh, I got to build a house like that. Like women have their own space. Isn't that great, honey? And she goes, oh, I could do the sewing and I could do the cooking and I could do this. And when I had the girls over, we could hang out here. And the guy's like, I could have a man cave. And like, that's great. But it also means like men and women don't interact. You know, rich people can afford separate bedrooms. Kings and queens did not sleep together. They may have had sex, but they did not sleep together. The men had one place where they could do war and economics and he could have affairs. And the women had a whole separate part of the castle, whole separate part of the manor where they did their stuff. And then they came together for public ceremonies. And if they liked each other, private stuff too. But they were rich. So they did their own thing. Men did men's stuff. Women did women's stuff. And let's be honest. While we may think we live in a better world, the amount of women's stuff I do as a regular American man would get me laughed at by most kings in the ancient medieval and early modern period. They're like, what are you doing? Remember, the Arabs are poor. So women lived with each other, with lived with men. Now they're getting rich. And they take the Byzantine idea of separating. That men have a men's role, women have a women's role. And that was considered a good thing. It was a step up. You were buying a better house. The Greeks did this. How could it be wrong? They built Constantinople. And the second thing is the idea of the veil. Now that is different than the head covering. In the Middle East, everyone wore a head covering. Everyone, 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 everyone. All women, most men wore a hair covering. Why? You lived in a desert with a lot of sand. My veterans from Iraq will tell you in no uncertain terms where that sand gets into. And the answer is everything. I had one student who's like, I have been home eight months. I am still getting sand out of stuff. Sand gets into everything. So what do you do? You cover up. Look at the Virgin Mary. If you think head covering is a weird Islamic thing, look at the Virgin Mary. You will never, ever, 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 ever see her hair down. Ever. She is covered. She is humble. Her hair is for her 
and her husband. She is never portrayed with flowing locks down her shoulders and her breasts. Never, ever, ever. Why? Because nobody did. Why? Because you lived in a desert and you tried to keep the sun and the sand out. So what we're talking about, what the Persians created was the veil that covered the nose, the mouth, half the face that left the eyes exposed. So there are some veils that even cover the eyes. This again was considered a good thing. This is Persian. Hey, honey, look at what I found. I conquered Persia and look at what I've got. Look at this silk that comes from China, 5,000 miles away. Oh, what do we do? Well, you wear it. I th- well, the women in Persia wore it like this. Oh, and the women. It's like French women wore bikinis. And so what did American women do? Start wearing bikinis where you suddenly didn't wear 98% of your body was not covered. Why? Why does it matter that it's the French? Because the French are more sophisticated. Ooh, it's French culture. It can't be bad. If the French do it, it can't be bad. They smoke cigarettes, drink wine, and have baguettes for breakfast. It can't be bad. They're French. And so the veil is Persian. It can't be bad. So it's a fashion accessory. It's not... The point of this is that these three points, the women can no longer work, the idea of separating men from women, and the Persian veil covering the mouth and or the nose were not oppressive when they start. None of them were some guy twiddling his mustache or his beard and going, ha, 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 I will oppress women and take away all their rights. No. This was considered better living than how the Arabs had been living. But the effect was all the same. Isolation. The loss of rights, the loss of education. Because women no longer had to teach children, why should they go to school to learn the Quran? Because women are now separated from men, they no longer interacted. They no longer hung out. They no longer added their voices to the common wheel. They simply weren't there. They weren't in the man cave. It was a man cave. And so increasingly, women and men socially separate and see each other as different and weird. And then you get these social conventions that, well, what men are trying to hang out with the women? Well, Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. Romeo breaks into Juliet's house. To see Juliet, he climbs up the balcony. He is breaking and entering. He should be arrested. Because why is he doing that? Well, why is he doing that? To get with Juliet. He's trying to get with Juliet that night. They had a couple of dances. They were together for a little while. He stole a kiss on that first meeting, for God's sakes. I mean, this is a guy who knows absolutely no boundaries in Romeo and Juliet. This is not romantic. 
This is a guy who doesn't respect anybody's boundaries. Juliet might think it's hot. But he doesn't respect her boundaries or her family's boundaries or society's boundaries at all. And so why would a guy try to see the women? What is he trying to do? Well, he's trying to get the nookie. And that's a bad guy because he's not respecting the social protocols. So now you have to protect women by separating them out from predatory men even more. And so you get more dresses, you get more veils, you get more stuff to, quote, protect women from men, from predatory, sexually predatory men. And so women lose even more access to the public realm. They have more isolation in society. And you get the loss of rights and the loss of education. Now, we should also give women their due. They gained a lot of freedom in their world. They have an entire part of the house that's just theirs. The men aren't supposed to enter. The men aren't supposed to comment on the decoration. It is not, it is a woman space. It is a female space. And within that space, women dominate it. And so women gain power in there. We see this very clearly in the harem, which is oh is portrayed as this, well, the king of the sultan goes in and gets to have sex with whoever he wants. He's this 300 women. But within that world of 300 women are hierarchies, are power structures, is a lot of women. The convent works the same way. As a female-only space, all the jobs are done by women. All the education is done by women. All the teaching is done by women. By getting rid of men, women gain freedom and power. So there are plenty of women, plenty of Islamic women, who do not see any of this stuff as oppressive. Just as there are conservative American women who look aghast at what has happened to American femininity. Remember, the Equal Rights Amendment was destroyed, was, was failed, not because of men in America, but because of conservative women. So there are plenty of women who say, if you take all of this stuff away, we lose what structures of power we have. And so they don't see it as oppressive. So I want to try to, to explain all this stuff. I know it's complicated, and I, it's all different cultures, and I'm trying to give everyone their, their due because there are plenty of women who will give testimonials that their head covering is not oppressive to them. It is freeing to them. There is a video of, of a Muslim woman who she claims to be a Muslim woman. I don't know who she is but of doing the walk through New York New York streets where she walks as a New York American woman. Shorts, halter top, hair up, and how many times she gets harassed. They have like a number counter and it's bing and bing. Every time some guy says, hey baby, you know, some guy walks alongside her a little too long and he's staring at her chest. All the, they bing, 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 bing. She can't go one block without some dude harassing her. 
right? And there's more videos like that of, of different groups. But what this woman did was then she went the full covering. Leaving her face exposed, but her hair covered, her body covered, her the, the full to the wrists, to the ankles. And it could be edited this way. That's always a possibility. But they will show you 15 minutes of her walking in New York without being harassed, without being hey babied, without being stared upon, without being sexually um, harassed and turned into an object, objectified. Thank you. And that's freeing. Because in the public sphere, what all of that covering did, what the veil did, what the separation did, was turn women publicly into ghosts. Which is a problem if women want to be seen. But it also meant they could do things and go places where no one cared. They had the ability to have independence away from the objectification and the observation of men. And so there was an advantage in that too. And I, I don't want, there is no, nothing in this class except fascism that is all negative or all positive. There's just ways of seeing things and you try to understand why people dealt with them and why people do them and why people support them and why people continue them. And you do the advantages and the disadvantages. What do you gain? What do you lose? Because people then say, the gain is better than the loss. And there are other people who say, no. The loss is worse than the gain. And that is a legitimate argument to have in history, in society, in culture. I want you to kind of see that. I, wanna, I, I hope I'm tr explaining myself well. Be safe. Take care. Thank you.